This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Collin, and today, my guest is the actor George McKay. You may know him from such films as Defiance, Captain Fantastic, and his performance as Will Schofield in the Academy Award-winning film 1917. George can be seen in the new Netflix film, Munich, The Edge of War. The film is a thriller that takes place in the years leading up to World War II and features Jeremy Irons as Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. George plays the Prime Minister's secretary and finds himself at odds with a former friend who works for the German government. Both become reluctant spies trying to expose a Nazi secret. Here's a bit of the film's trailer. I believe the name Paul von Hartmann is known to you. Yes, sir. We were at Oxford together. He has a document in his possession. We'd like you to go to Munich tomorrow and get the document. It'll be an act of espionage on foreign soil. So we're here to talk about Munich, the edge of war. Uh, it takes place in like uh, 1937, 1938 for the most mm -hmm. part. And yeah. obviously uh, we'll get into the story and stuff, but the costumes and sets are a big part of it. Um, what is it like walking into that world? I mean, at one point there's just like, I don't know if they're CGI or not, but there's these beautiful cold cars going past you. Or you, you have these amazing suits and this, the, the like protocol of like sitting at a table being served at a restaurant, all these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, actually, my very first day on set was the scene just after he's um, uh, uh, he's he's spoken to Powell in the way in the story where they've had their sort of secret meeting where they speak German to one another. And he's walking back and starting to notice the fervor of the regime. So the first day on set was like cars and soldiers and the swastika banners and German shepherds and, you know, the pillars. And we were in the middle of the city. Like it was, it felt like the kind of one of the biggest sort of set days that we had really. Um, and it's always amazing to step into. And, you know, the costumes were another part of it. Like I, I spoke for, for a long time beforehand with Frau Kur, our costume designer about, finding the suit for Hugh because I felt like he was this sort of like kind of bit down at heel doesn't really quite care hasn't doesn't sleep very much I think lives off coffee and cigarettes but also has this sort of like you know this kind of the, this mind that's always ticking over so we made his suit a tiny bit too small to start with and and the sort of herringbone um that we also thought he's kind of there's a there's a texture to him and there's a quality to him so he's he's been told to get a dark suit but we found something a bit more characterful within that and uh, and a slightly skinnier tie because of the references that I was given were to the character in terms of vibe between him and Powell were a lot to do with like uh, musicians and double acts even like not relevant to the 30s but like um, uh, there was like Andre 3000 and Big Boy 
uh, or like Nick Cave and Roland S. Howard or John and John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Like, I think that in 32, which they carried through to 38, despite the seriousness that their lives had kind of had sort of swirled around them is that these two guys who thought that they were like young pioneers, you know, like even if they weren't, that's how they felt. Um, and so it was all about, we tried to put quite a lot of that into the costume, but obviously then he still has to wear a uniform and that stuff couldn't be noticeable to the prime minister. So it's all about kind of filling it with as much texture and character as possible, but then also being someone who could disappear into a room. Oh man, I guess we follow questions, but I guess the first is like, if those are the duos you guys were kind of looking at, like which one of you would be Andre 3000? <laughs> I think that Hugh would like to think that it was him, but I think it would be Pal. I think know? it would be Pal too. Yeah, it would I, th I, think, I think Hugh would kind of consider himself like quietly, like Pal doesn't realize that I'm actually Andre, but Pal is Andre. <laughs> <laughs> which is, I think, how the relationship for it. That works for them too. Um, well, uh, let's just for, for people, I got to watch the movie uh, yesterday, but for people who, who don't really know what this movie is about, um, it takes place uh, kind of in the buildup to World War II. In fact, uh, most of it is trying to prevent what would be World War II. I don't think yes. that's even a term at that point. And uh, it, it takes place basically between uh, Neville Chamberlain and uh, Hitler and uh, Chamberlain's played by Jeremy Irons. And you play his the prime minister's private secretary. But what I love about this movie is it's uh, your old college friend from Oxford, mm. um, who is on uh, and on the German side of things. And you guys are kind of uh, thrust together despite your friendship having fallen apart. Is that a great way to describe this? That's, film? that's that's pretty bang on. That's that's it. And I think there's sort of the 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 further kind of uniting juxtaposition, if that makes sense, is that what we both want to avert this this war from happening but my character wants to do it via a pre peace process and support Chamberlain in that and Powell wants to do it because he doesn't trust Hitler to keep to his word and so therefore he's trying to depose him but to legitimize that deposition or uh, or disposition I don't know if that's the right word to legitimize this coup that he's trying to um, uh, make happen he needs Hitler to go to war. To give him enough of a reason to get rid of him, he needs to war to break out, where you've got my character going, how could you, do you know how risky that is? Like, if you let that begin, how can you be sure that you can make that stop? So it's it's sort of about, you know, two opposing ways that, you, that you're trying to make something bad from start happening, <laughs> if that makes sense. And, 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 the, and the idea of like going and uh, starting the war then is that it would be, not a smaller war, but it would be something that's more contained than, what eventually did happen with you know yeah, yeah and, and i think it's that thing of it's playing the, the story and using this the the second world war and, and this moment in history is playing with hindsight because none of these characters know that it's going to play out the way it does i think that's that's where it sort of resonates with some of the politics and things going on today is that you know you don't know anything beyond the present moment truly but if you have an inkling i sense this could really go badly. I think this could really grow and damage, and I fear for where this could go. But what evidence do I have other than a gut instinct that could legitimize a really serious political or global action to be taken? Um, and it feels the sort of equivalent in either sort of some of the political regimes which are, uh, you know, brewing at present or or even just big societal change, like action towards climate change or something where you kind of go, I feel like this is gonna get really bad if we don't do something, but it's not bad enough that we can legitimize 
doing something right now. It's impossible to know what the future is going to be exactly. But that's why this story is interesting. I think that's why we in stories, we keep going back to history to sort of explore that because history is static and we are able to take it apart. Well, and you talked about like the like the obviousness of being able to see something to know to change it. I think there, you talked about that scene where uh, you're you're running, uh, not running, but you're uh, after that meeting at the bar. You're going back, and you're. I think at one point you're literally. It looks like you're being like surrounded by like Nazi flags. You know, um, it like literally is hitting you in the face. Is what I'm trying to say. And I think yeah. that's also when you see that you realize just how far Germany is. Um, I, I want to ask kind of more of a, I, I just don't know question. I know Neville Chamberlain's real. I know Hitler's real. I know mm. the, the general history of that. It, it, are the characters you guys play, are these based off real people or is this a true story? Like, uh, tell me a little bit more about that. No, Hugh, Hugh isn't real. Hugh is a fictional creation and Powell is based loosely on the actions of, of a real person, but he was not called Powell von Hartmann. So their friendship and their storyline is a fictional thread woven through this, this real history. Um, and that's where the genius of Robert and, and Ben, who wrote our script, kind of come in. But uh, in terms of, so building Hugh, I guess, I guess that's where you sort of, you have the ability to kind of, um, to have an eye on the present and what you want to say, or at least offer up about kind of uh, why this story resonates with the modern day. Yeah. So um, this is probably the most important question I'm going to ask about this film. And I do mean this as a respectful question. Um, but there are certain things an actor has to do in their career. Like at some point you're going to do a death scene. And at mm -hmm. some point you're going to play drunk. And your character has, you play uh, at one point tipsy at the beginning of the film. It's kind mm -hmm. of a flashback. And uh, how do you approach playing drunk? Because obviously that could go really poorly. That can go very silly or very, yeah. And I, I mean this very sincerely. Honestly, yeah. I do. It's, I don't know, it's a balance. I didn't think sort of too much about it. I guess maybe trying not to go too far, trying not to be too obvious, and maybe sort of thinking about it more like, rather than the sort of physicality of when you're drunk, but like, you know, the sort of more mental and emotional undoings that drunk sort of opens your floodgates a wee bit, <laughs> for better or for worse, and kind of just go, well, I'm just going to be that version of you who some of the filters have come away, you know? Um, and... Uh, so that's sort of more what I concentrated on. And, and the, the, the scene as well, I think we were helped by our context. It's a beautifully kind of giddy scene. You know, we're laid on our backs, there's fireworks going off and I, like, you know, the camera's handheld. So I think uh, we lent into the way, you know, our setting, but <laughs> just remembering a time where you were pissed, I think is probably the easiest, <laughs> you know. If, yeah, if you can no, remember it, you know. That's, saying, that's the problem is, is remembering, and then you don't want to always remember those Yeah, yeah, too. yeah. Or, or when you or seeing people, you know, seeing people kind of cherry picking those moments where you're perhaps talking to someone where you're more sober than than someone else at that point, and sort of seeing when it's slight slurs or or whatever it is, you know, cherry picking little kind of physical attributes, and then let the more the sort of just the idea of having a couple of filters come away be the rest of it. The other thing I want to talk about, uh, so Jeremy Irons, oh my goodness, mm. like a couple of years ago, he had uh, Watchmen on HBO and you're like, oh my God, another fantastic role. And then in this film, him as Neville Chamberlain is just brilliant. Men and women of Britain and the empire. As long as war is not begun, that is always hope. Cannot play poker with a gangster without having some cards up on sleeve. What is it like 
as I say, it's such a silly question. What is it like working with them? But more importantly, as you are working with them, what are you taking away from that experience? I think, um, as you say, like Jeremy just gave the most amazing performance. I think he does that amazing thing of, of he was being so specific with his portrayal of Chamberlain, but then never letting it just be about specificity, you know, still imbuing it with his character and his kind of verve and the spirit that, that he brought to Chamberlain to the humanity, you know, so it wasn't just an impersonation. I guess like working with Jeremy, of it was uh, the things you learn is, I guess it's, it's about specificity. Is is he is he's a real um, uh, stickler for detail, um, and and find and sort of studying why details mean so much to him was a learning point. And then also there, there was this sort of beautiful flow where like when there was this sort of specificity of the work, but then you could also feel when we sort of got into a rhythm with each other and the enjoyment that sort of that came out of playing back and forth with 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 any actor really. Um, but it just sort of has an added thing when it's someone's experienced as, as Jeremy. When you talk about details, do you mean like details of like like a, a beat in the screen or like details of like something like a costume or prop? Um, it's a, a lot to do with props actually and, and the sort of blocking of a scene and the way that sort of a physicality within the room can tell a story uh, and an understanding of, I guess, the kind of physical mathematics of storytelling that frame and hold than the emotional work that he's doing as well. I want to ask about a particular scene. This takes place early in the film, so I don't think I'm giving anything away. Mm. Uh, but there's a scene where you stop at home and you need to grab a bag and mm. you tell your wife to like pack a week's worth of clothes and take your child and go someplace safe. And yeah. the scene that I'm, I'm curious, it takes place kind of in like the foyer there. It's like, it's your wife is literally pushing back and your character seems torn between obviously his marriage and his family, but also his service to his country. I'm curious, why is that scene important? And how did you go about, again, finding that balance that moment? Thank you for bringing it up. I think like, I think the scene's important because it kind of gives context to all of these people. Like, firstly, it's a very simply, it's just a very human thing. It's like, we're all trying to juggle things all the time. And if, you know, if we're lucky enough to, to have a family, that's, that's a balance on like, on, on where you put your energy to, to provide for them. And, and the perspective of life is something that's always, I don't know, I'm always considering as to like, well, something that might be tough or feel difficult in this moment might in the long haul in the way that Hugh is kind of going like, I know this is not what you want in this moment in this hallway right now, but potentially if I don't go back to work and solve this thing, we could be in a really serious situation come tomorrow or even the next week. But then also, if you sort of get lost too much in a commitment to a future or a building of a future, you miss out on that present. And, you know, the film is kind of on a knife edge without giving too much away as to where his marriage is, you know, uh, you know, even, even towards the end. Um, and I think I feel that in terms of, you know, like work means a huge amount to me and being blessed with any opportunity or choice in my work, I, I feel a level of responsibility and kind of hopefully making you know, good choices and then, and, and giving myself as fully to those opportunities when they arise. But similarly, I also care deeply about my family. So I, I, and I want to be true to them and they are, they are my ultimate as well. So I think I, I found that scene really important as well, because that's, that gives you insight. And, and also, sorry, finally in the context of the film is it's talking about the humans and the characters in this film are responsible for massive social global happenings. And the men such as Chamberlain and Dalidier and Hitler, they are 
singular men who are responsible for millions of people. Those singular humans will have lives at home that will also impact these decisions that will then impact all these other people. And so it just makes me think about the sort of, for better or for worse, the humanity of, of leaders or not even just leaders, but people of responsibility. I agree with completely with what you're saying, but I, I like the way in the film, um, the like something like Hitler's portrayed because he is a person in it and he's become such a big myth and almost, uh, I want to say godlike, but he just doesn't seem like a realistic person who lived on this earth, who's, who drank coffee and tea and probably mm. had good days and bad days. And yet in this film, you see a little bit of that, but you also see his, his rise in power and just like, oh yeah, this the guy's stop people are the reason behind all this pain and suffering, but also people can be the solutions to it. And also it goes back to that little, that trio kind of at the beginning of the film that we see too, which is- Yeah, it's, really I think it's about, it's about personal responsibility. Because if, also if you understand, though, I think also when leaders in this, in the story sense become leaders, they separate from the rest of society and you separate them as people. And if you allow yourself to disconnect them from being a, a human being, it sort of means that you don't have to be responsible for the choices that they make because you would never do that because you're not like them because you're not, they're not human anymore. But actually, if you, if this story allows people to feel that those people, you know, good and bad are human, then it makes, hopefully will make us in our everyday lives be more responsible with the choices that we make because you're sort of all leadership, you're all leaders in your own context, be that, you know, your family, your kids or your siblings or, or your football team, or your school, or your, or your neighbor, whatever it is. Like, for a moment, we all have a personal responsibility. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So the name of our podcast is called I'm So Obsessed. George, what are you currently obsessed with? Well, it's literally, it's a recent, the, the obsession has just finished, but it was Succession. The third season oh, of Succession. I, I share that obsession with you for Succession. Right. Um, and it has ended for now. What, I mean, but tell me a little bit, what is it about Succession that uh, appeals to you? And also I'm curious because it is in a way a very American uh, story at one sense. And I'm curious as to someone who is, not from the US, like how does that appeal to you? I um, I missed it the first time around. I, I, when everyone went mad for that first season and the second season, I was kind of like, and it was sort of halfway through the second season, started watching it and was like, wow. I kind of started from the beginning again and had that sort of glorious thing of, because I'd missed it, didn't have to wait for anything and could just, <laughs> I, I need to watch more TV genuinely. Like I don't watch enough content, I think, especially to sort of being lucky enough to be in the industry. I don't take in as many shows as I could, but with this one, I really, I got hooked. I just think it's kind of genius where some of these characters are so sort of abhorrent, but you're so drawn in by them. They're, they're kind of the genius of how that happens and the sort of, the way that they can make small situations feel so massive and the kind of the metaphors of like 
you know, like just simple imagery of like the genius of story. I mean, I think like Rory Culkin's character, like, you know, in that first season when he gets his new office and, you know, he just stands by the window and just does what he does, you know, like you kind of think like <laughs> yeah. as an image that says so much and what a, what an incredibly powerful, simple image that sets him up. And then, and then also the dialogue and, and, and the, the performances as well. I, th- you know, I think, uh, it's, uh, is it Jeremy Strong who plays Kendall? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, watching that man on being the edge or that character be on the edge of a breakdown so convincingly where it, there's no fireworks, but I, 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 I feel so tense when I watch him because I don't, I don't know where he's going to go. And I, and I fear for him and for people around him. Um, it's such a, it's such a layered performance that happens so quietly. Um, yeah, I was, I've, you know, I've just finished the season and, and wherever it goes, well, who knows? Oh yeah. And, and, and I say, and, and uh, just for uh, all the Culkin fans out there, it's actually Kieran Culkin in this one. Roy Corey, Kieran, great oh, too. Fucking no, it's, okay. I'm so sorry. it's okay. Don't worry about it. And I say, I, I, uh, my two cents, uh, cousin Greg, I just think his, yeah. his oh, arc is genius. insane. Last we talked was right before 1917 happened, and then it won a lot of awards. I'm wondering, like, what was that journey like for you, especially on the end of it, just to see how beloved it was and how much it was celebrated? It was, it was so special. Like, I, I don't know how to sum it up fully. It was, it's so special when there was so much on that film where things aligned. Like the whole, the whole process was about alignment, really, and the way that it it came together beautifully. We're so gratefully it aligned with an amazing reception, which also we're still working our way back to a film being able to be received in that way, where there's not even, people didn't think twice at that moment to go to the cinema and it was made for the cinema. So everything about it and to be part of a, a film that, you know, was kind of had the journey it did and to go kind of to go to all of those things that I've been watching since I was a kid, those, you know, award ceremonies and to to just be in the room with you know peers and heroes was was just amazing it was really it was very very special I think because it all meant so much to us that that project um it's uh it made it all the sweeter well, it also seems like I know you cut. You have a background. Your your uh, parents were like in in theater, and mm-hmm. I got to think that there's a, a side of there where it's like, all right, you know, like there's not much higher you can hit than getting like something like an Academy Award. And I know that's not why we do these things, but it is still mm-hmm. got to be pretty cool. What was your parents' reaction to everything? Oh, they they were they were so chuffed. They were so so chuffed. Like I think, um, yeah, they were just they were thrilled with it. They were so they were so you know kind of overwhelmed and excited and just kind of happy to have that moment because you know like who that, that's that's a rare thing and we knew it was a rare thing and just to be enjoyed and and soaked up as best as possible but it was yeah it was really really wonderful for everyone i know their background was more like your mom was in costumes and wardrobe and your mm-hmm. father was in scenery were they excited that you went into acting or is it more like oh you'd have been a great light designer son you know <laughs> <laughs> no I t- no they've always been really supportive i think they've been that sort of perfect combination of supportive and enthusiastic but also quite calm and chilled out about it there was never a pressure as to you know is this the right thing to do or i think because because they value creative work so much because you know because they're part of it and uh, and often it's sort of people don't register or see 
costumes and lights but but it's kind of everyone it's the same thing as build as building a set lighting a show it's the same thought process and collaboration that goes into it and so i think they just kind of revere creative work and so it was never they were never scared of this sort of industry or or making a life out of this um and therefore supported it wholeheartedly but also were kind of very realistic as to you know just 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 work hard and see how it goes but you know just all you can do is your best kind of thing uh, you've worked with some phenomenal actors we were talking about um jeremy irons earlier but you worked with david craig uh daisy ridley uh, vigo mortensen um all these amazing people are there things you learn from them or things that you're like oh i see why they did that now um there's been so many things that i've learned from from all of them i think maybe the thing that runs through is it's it's all about the work the what's find so inspiring about these people that you know I will bring my sort of reverence to as to be like, oh my gosh, what are they going to, you know, what do they, what does this mean? There's a sort of simple to them. It's just quite a simple relationship of kind of what's best for the story and how best can we serve the story? And that focus is, is a very unselfish, inspiring focus really, you know, or like same with, same with Roger Deakins as well. You kind of go, my gosh, it's Roger Deakins. What's it? And it's just about how best can we shoot this? And, and I guess, a, a respect for the work that breeds a respect in themselves. I think that thing of like, they, they, they are able to, to make quite strong decisions and be quite bold in how they operate because it's not about them. It's about doing the work well. And uh, you like, like Roger on the first day in 1917, we didn't shoot and we had 250 background artists in full makeup, ready to go in that trench and the sun was out. And he's like, we cannot compromise the aesthetic of this film on the first day. So we will wait. And we then rehearsed all of that day, rehearsed all three shots that we were going to do, shot the second day, and then we're ahead of schedule by the end of the second day. And it was that sort of thing where there was no sort of like, oh, I know it's going to make people feel uncomfortable if I say this, because it wasn't about his ego. It was just about what's best for this story. And everyone being in service of the story was, um, yeah, I think that's the uniting thing between everyone. I want to wrap up here. So we do a thing called pick one. I give you a couple of choices. You pick one. It doesn't mean the thing you pick is better than the other. Let's play pick one. The first I have is pick one, running through a field in a World War I uniform or running down a sidewalk in a 1938 suits to parliament. Pick one. That, down a, down a, uh, the, 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 with the First World War uniform. Okay, great. And then this is the hardest one. Uh, pick one. Jeremy Irons in Reversal of Fortune. Jeremy Irons in Watchmen. Jeremy Irons in Lion King. Jeremy Irons in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Pick one. Lion King, hands down. Well, George, I'm so glad I've gotten to talk to you. It was really good catching up and hopefully I'll see you in another year or so. <laughs> yes, hopefully so. And maybe in person again. Maybe in person again. All right, take care. All right, Thank take you. care. And you. Thanks so much. I want to thank George for chatting with me and I want to thank you for listening. Munich, The Edge of War premieres January 21st on Netflix. I'm So Obsessed was created by our executive producer, Danielle Ramirez. Our editor and lead producer is Sophia Fox Sowell. Please take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app and follow the show on Twitter at I'm So Obsessed Pod. And until next time, take care. <laughs>